I think that is to stop overthinking healing because in religion, we're taught to intellectualize, we're taught to separate ourselves from our body and to really question our own intuition. But I would encourage you to get back to basics and find a routine and a way of life that's going to work well for you in the long run, not the short run. And so that may mean building this up over time rather than having it come quickly for you. There are over 4,000 recognized religions in the world. Which one are you leaving? Why are you deconverting? Welcome to the Deconversion Podcast, where we explore the experiences and challenges of deconverting from religious faith. We are here to discuss and explore this topic and help you on your journey to living an authentic life. Three, two, one. Welcome, everyone. We have a real, genuine, heartfelt treat from New York. Kit is with us today. Kit, I am super... I. Listen, no no shade towards all the other listeners, but I think I, I am so excited about this one because we're going to talk about Body Keeps the Score and get into the stuff that I super love. I've been looking forward to this all week. Tim can tell you that for sure. Yep, yep. He sure has. I'm going to be just sitting back along for the ride on this one. I'll be here. I'll be here if anyone needs me. Yeah, if you don't mind, will you just take a moment to let everybody know who you are and where they can find you and all the fun stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Kit Morgan. I'm a licensed social worker and therapist. And I practice with clients living in the state of New York. And I do that all over telehealth. So I see people all over the state of New York, but I'm based in upstate New York. I have an Instagram, which is Kit Morgan Therapy. And you can find me there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So for any of the listeners I might not know, I've, Tim and I've gone on a wild, let's find therapists that are specializing in deconversion. And part of the reason why is, and I told, I share this with you, Kit, is that I'm very much, I take massive action from my emotions. And so when someone was really venting with us and sharing their frustrations about their Christian therapist and kind of some gaslighting that's going on. I was like, I'm finding every therapist that specializes in deconversion and religious trauma, <laughs> and I'm going to find them all. And you were already following <laughs> us. So you you popped right up. And so I that's my way of saying thank you for being in this space because it genuinely is needed. And I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And you're like the Liam Neeson for deconversion <laughs> therapist. <laughs> I love it. That's I'm good. Yeah, exactly. We're never going to forget that one. Yeah. yeah. I will find you. He has a specific (laughs) set of skills. (laughs) Yes. I have a specific set of skills. With that being said, I am guessing that if you deconverted that maybe just maybe you grew up in some type of religion. Am I right? Am I wrong? Maybe not. (laughs) Yes, you are so right. I grew up in the Baptist tradition And the way that I say it like that is because my family would bounce in between uh, independent Baptist and Southern Baptist. And so I got all the Baptists. I came from a conservative family that it was like the first week that I was born, I was brought into the Baptist church type of a thing. And in growing up in this setting, it was just something that was very much a part of my life. 
And I came from a dysfunctional household, but my parents were everything I wanted them to be whenever we were in the Baptist church. And so for me, it felt like this almost like fantasy land for me. And so I, without hesitation, whenever I was like four or five years old, I decided to convert to being Baptist because it made the most sense to me because I was like, this is the place where I have a family that I wanted them to be where they weren't that way behind closed doors. Yeah. That's and, gotta be such a crazy situation you're, yeah. you're, because you, if you go to church, you're like you said, your parents are acting in a certain way and then you get home. Did it make you, did it make you love church where you really craved it did or did it make you confused like what emotions did you have as you're struggling between that and the other question i have is i think that's extremely observant i I would argue that maybe not a lot of people will be able to observe that so how were you able to recognize or observe that at a young age or is it like looking back and reflecting that you put the pieces of the puzzle together Yeah, I mean, it's definitely looking back and reflecting on that and processing through that in my own therapy to have come to that realization because I didn't have that awareness whenever I was a kid. To me, going to church was like going to school. It was like you had the subjects that you didn't like so much, like I didn't like math so much, but I liked history and I liked reading and I liked lunch, right? I loved Baptist potlucks. So there's so many crossovers where it was just like, yeah, this is a part of my life. Of course, this is what I do. Just like how I go to school, I go to church. And so I just didn't really know any difference. And especially because my family was like very much in the belief of to be in the world, but to be separate from the world, which meant to be separate from mainstream culture and to really only associate with other Baptists. My family didn't even really want me to associate with people who were Catholic or who came from other denominations. So I was in this very insulated type culture where it was all I really knew in growing up and just didn't know any difference. So if you don't mind me asking, what was the difference between parents at church versus parents at home? So my parents at church, they were church leaders. Like my mom would be a church camp nurse. My dad became a disciplinary pastor. And so whenever there were quote unquote disciplinary issues within the church, my dad would be consulted. Both my parents were Sunday school teachers and were very happy-go-lucky, very fun Whenever a kid would learn all the books of the Bible in order, my dad would literally stand on his head and he would say all the books of the Bible. Like they would just do these things where it was like people knew like, oh, this is so and so and they are a lot of fun and Mm. they could just make anything so fun and very engaging. And kids really looked up to them. They really felt safe with my parents. My parents would acknowledge kids' strengths and say how great they were doing or how good they looked. And that wasn't what happened at home. 
my mom would have these blackouts and she wouldn't know who I was and her eyes would turn dark and she would just start acting violently. And my sister and I had some near death experiences and my dad knew that this happened, but he permitted it. And he would say that our mom was the better parent of the two. My dad seemed like the fun parent of the two, but then every so often he would have these rages that would happen and I would have no idea where they would come from. I watched my dad take our small dog in its cage and throw it against the wall and create a hole in the wall. And I had to cancel having friends over the next day because he didn't want the friends to see that there was a hole in the wall until he patched it up. I watched Mm. my dad rip a fridge out of the wall. He would get this kind of super strength and be destructive. And so I was experiencing these things. I was watching these things since starting at the age of four or five. My mom would lock me out of the house and I would be out of the house for hours. And Mm. I lived in a neighborhood where there were multiple people who were convicted of molesting children. And I had no idea where I was going to go. And because I didn't know any different and I didn't think that I would be believed. I Mm. would get asked at my Christian school or at my church to draw a picture of my family. And I would try to draw what was going on or I would try to tell people and they would tell me, wash your mouth out with soap, or they would throw away my drawing and tell me, you need to be respectful. You are a liar. And eventually I got told that so many times that I just shut down and I just really checked out to the point where I didn't even acknowledge the violence that was going on in my home and was just numb to it. Yeah. But that's, oh, sorry, Tim. No, I was just going to say, I'm so sorry you, you had to endure and go through that sort of thing. I'm sad to say that seems to be a common theme sometimes is that you have this kind of front that's put forward that's in in one space. And then in the other space, there's this dramatic alternative that's not talked about and it's not communicated. And uh, thank you for sharing your story here with us about that, because I think that's really powerful for people to hear that kind of stuff and realize that they're not a lot of people feel alone in those situations. And that sort of thing makes them not feel alone because people have gotten out of this sort of thing yeah exactly yeah so did you have this the did you have this church life versus home life did this continue into high school and then your young adult transition into college oh yeah absolutely so i became a teenager then i just really became invested into evangelicalism and Mm. i just poured myself into that you doubled down I did. And a lot of it was because I was really close with my dad's parents. And my dad's parents knew that my mom was unstable and and that she wasn't a safe person. And so they acknowledged that. And I really felt like I had a lot of emotional support from them. 
they lived in Florida, but I lived in Indiana. So there was that distance, that space between us. But then what ended up happening was my dad came from generations of coal miners and both his parents died from coal-related diseases. My dad's mom, whenever I was in middle school, and then my dad's dad, whenever I was in high school. Gotcha. And after that, I felt so alone. I didn't have anyone that I could talk to about these things. I didn't have anyone who would listen or understand. And so what I did was I just buried myself into church ministry, into camp ministries, into reading my Bible. And I use these kinds of things as as a way of escape. Sure. Yeah. And it sounds like, too, out of all the environments, this was a good one to to escape. Because it's like, it was almost like, hey, my parents are somewhat sane in this environment. So let me create as much positive reinforcement in this environment as I can. Because it sounds like the opportunity to really put that energy and passion into a sport or a music or any other passions that you might have. It sounds like it might not have been as feasible or as easily done as it was going to church and just really doubling down in church. Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of people look at dissociation as being something very negative, but it's actually a very advanced kind of coping skill that people use whenever having those lack of resources. And I had lack of resources because of stigma of therapy and mental health care in the Baptist circles that I was raised in. But really, it was through that dissociation that helped me really survive those kinds of environments. I saw religion, like as I reflect back at it today, really as a way of dissociation during those times. I think that happens to a lot of people. And then after deconverting, and then sometimes looking at people who are still converted And seeing this kind of mismatch where it's what's going on and it's like dissociation. That's what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a huge group of people. I just got, (laughs) it's a little embarrassing, but I, uh, we're going to go meet Seth Andrews and I hadn't read or listened to any of his stuff. And I had just, so I just finished his book, Deconverted, which is more embarrassing because we're on the deconversion podcast. But, um, (laughs) In in his book, he talks about that, how he had such a chapter of his life where he was dormant and it was he was a Christian, quote unquote, but he didn't practice. He wasn't in it. And he was just, like you said, disassociated. And he talked about how a lot of other people are that way. He said he felt like he was endorsing something he really didn't believe in, but he was just in that dormant phase of leaving religion. Yeah. When did uh when did the will start coming off for you? When did you start going, okay, I'm donezos. I'm no more Baptist for me. It happened a few times for me until it really got derailed. The first time I was in fourth grade, I considered myself to be atheist at that time. And it was because I really started taking the blinders off of my eyes of what was going on and just saw so much corruption in the church at such a young age that started changing whenever my grandparents got really sick. And then I got reinvested 
back mm. into it. And then I was 18, I went to Liberty University. Such an embarrassing moment for me. So Tim, and for the listener, we're talking and I'm telling her about this. So she said, I went to Liberty University. I was like, oh, that's neat. And then I'm just telling her about this documentary and Jerry Falwell. And she's like, yeah, I went to Liberty yeah. University. I'm like, yeah. So anyways, in this documentary, and no, Isaac, I went to the conference. And I was like, oh, shit, this is so embarrassing for me. Okay. And I was just but, like, oh down. I, the, I did not put one and one together. And so I told her about how I offered people a bottle of booze him for anyone new oh yeah on the podcast a bottle of booze to anybody that went to liberty university i, oh, I think God. you're gonna have to send kit one yeah, yeah. Hey, it's no problem i don't drink any booze so that saves you money all right perfect yeah so it was just it was so funny and then yeah. afterwards i was like I, on my notes liberty it's called liberty isaac it's called liberty oh my gosh so I don't know if you know this, but there's this documentary kit. And in this documentary, they <laughs> I'm just kidding. So share with us what it was like going to Liberty. Was that your school of choice or how did you get to Liberty? <laughs> yeah. Oh, also my pronouns are they, them. So oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. I know it can be tricky with them, but Our Southern boys have to adjust. Yes. It's, 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 it's a, bra- a brave new world. Yeah, feel free to call me out. If I'm being cognizant, I'm really good. But if I get going, then it slips up. But remember, we can edit. So I'm going to edit that shit. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been trying to get better at decreasing my people pleasing a bit and like reminding people about it. Mm -hmm. So it's something that like that I'm working on as a part of my process. So was Liberty, did I want to go? Great question. I watched my older sister try to do what she wanted to do for college. And as a result of that, my parents kicked her out and she was homeless. She lived out of my grandfather who had passed his car that he had given to her. I was like an old person Buick. So she's just in the hills of Missouri and showering and God knows where. And yeah. And so I watched that happen and I was like, I'm going to do whatever my parents allow me to do in terms of college. And so I, because all of my social networks were all Baptist Mm. because that was only what I was allowed. So if my parents kicked me out, the night I would be going to the homeless shelter because I, like all of the people at the Baptist church would have been loyal to my parents. That was what was demonstrated to me. So I had to think about things in terms of survival. Yeah. And my parents gave me a list of schools. Ironically enough, Liberty University was the best school. I think that's so interesting because I have been accused in some instances by some people in my periphery that a lot of the stuff that we talk about when we talk about like religious trauma and stuff is like only true when it comes to some of these high control groups and cultish behavior and stuff like this. Baptists are pretty widely accepted. Mm -hmm. It's all over the place. And you don't have to be in some niche 
control group to experience that. I don't feel that I have a choice of any kind to go do anything because this is all I'm submerged and surrounded by this on all corners. And Mm -hmm. you can feel just as trapped in one of these larger organizations. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, Baptist is looked at as being as American as apple pie. Yeah, very true. And at the same point, it's like people who have not had these experiences don't know just how nefarious it could be. We look at the DOJ investigation of the Southern Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. Wow. I looked at some of that. Unbelievable. Yeah. I went to several of the churches that are listed on that investigative list. I recognize names. I know these people. And some of these years that they mentioned, I was a child. Just at looking at this, I remember whenever the Catholic priests and clergy were being brought into the media about what they were doing and the predatory behaviors, then I would be at the Baptist church and they would say, we never do this. And it was at those churches that are literally listed in the DOJ investigation. That's wild. Absolutely wild. So when they said, okay, you can go to Liberty. Obviously, at some point, you have managed to get away from this kind of this resource dichotomy, which is such a hard thing for all young adult transition periods. It's really an area that's close to my heart, especially for me, because I experienced a lot of issues around that. When when was it where you were like, okay, I feel like I can stand on my own two feet and have my independent opinions and viewpoints, and I'm going to express my more authentic self? It took me a long time. I had to really think about it. I had to be very strategic about it because in being in this, I knew that if I took a misstep, it could be the matter of housing. It could be a matter of life or death type of a thing. Mm. And I started therapy when I was 19 and and that became my processing of what I was going to do. So it was this extended period of time where it was helping me build my stability. So I had done two years of college when I was in high school. And then I did 21 credits a semester. When I finished high school, I completed my undergrad really early because of that. With my grads, I did that at a state school and lived from home because I wanted to save money because I knew if I didn't save money, I wasn't going to be able to stand on my own two feet. Although I wish that wasn't what I had to do at that point, that was all I felt was possible. It was like I would sit in therapy sessions and I would literally have spreadsheets, like financial spreadsheets. I would bring them into session and I would be like, let's see if this plan works and everything and processing through this in session. I don't think that enough trauma therapists do this. We really need to be talking about the financial impacts that Mm -hmm. help people in getting out of domestic violence situations. 
and yeah. different ways of helping in having financial autonomy as well, because abusive people and churches will find different ways to still keep these strings on people where a lot of domestic violence survivors, they may try to leave a situation very quickly without all of this planning involved. And so then that only works for a temporary amount of time before mm-hmm. they are unable to continue to sustain that. And then they only see that they can go back because trying to build a healthy community takes a long period of time because yeah. you're not getting the love bombing that you are getting in an abusive environment such as high control religion or in a domestic violence household. So that's why it took me such a long time whenever I had even let go of the beliefs because I wasn't looking at this for a short term. I was looking at this for the long term. Yeah, you had you had a survival plan in place. And I think one of the things that it to extend on what you're saying, you're obviously very intelligent. You obviously have just some nat- natural aptitude for learning with you having accomplished years of college before you've gotten out of high school. We've talked enough for me to recognize, okay, I even told uh, Tim, I said, I was like, kids smart, like they, they know their shit. And so it was just, it, you have that ability, but not every single person maybe has that same learning aptitude that where mm-hmm. they're going to walk into counseling with spreadsheets and do things of, of that nature. And so I think in some ways in this is, I feel like you're almost an outlier one because you you are navigating this, but also because you have the intuition and the intellect to have the planning. And it just, it makes me sad to think about people who maybe don't have that same level of intellect and intelligence and discipline. I It's got to take a ton of discipline because yeah. you're just talking about the financial part or getting enough money to leave an abusive situation. I know, I don't know if, I think I told you about this, Tim, but I gave my Durango away to a woman who was trying to leave her mm-hmm. husband in Colorado because I didn't want to yep. bring the Durango down here. Be, because there is a practical sense to this. I think sometimes we talk a lot about feelings, emotions, cognitive dissonance, and different cognitive types of therapies. But there is a, how am I going to pay rent? How do I keep yeah. the water bill on? That There is a financial aspect to it, that. So it just breaks my heart. But w- I said all that to say this, if someone's listening to this kit and they are struggling with that, do you have any advice for them? Or what were a few things that kind of helped you get through that time period? Because I know someone specifically who came out and said that they were gay and their response from their parents weren't great. And they didn't have, they weren't able to put this suppress this emotional box to the side to navigate the survival. They just, they blew up. So I'm just curious if looking back, if you have any suggestions for someone who maybe is trying to balance out resources and the practicality of deconverting. With that reference to that person's experience, whenever I stopped with the dissociation and was like, oh yeah, okay, now seeing (laughs) everything clearly, oh, I was angry. (laughs) There it is. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I relate. (laughs) And 
I made a lot of people in my family very angry as a result because I would go up (laughs) to these family members and I'd be like, hey, so (laughs) I remember that this thing happened. Is this true? Did you do this? And they would be like, yes, that's true. And And they were like, oh, no. And then I'm just like, this is so bad. And then I started trying to see if I could find like, in a way, confidence or like allyship within the family and just being like, yo, so this is what happened to me from one of these family members. They would just be like, you sound batshit crazy. Then they would go to my sibling and be like, yo, so this is what they said. They're like, is this true? And my sibling would be like, yeah, this is true. And then my sibling eventually came to me and was like, you got to shut up. Mm. I was like, but I don't want to shut up. I was like, I have been shut up now for too long. And and I was just basically, F this shit. Because I think that part of the process of healing from trauma is grieving. One of these parts of grieving is anger. And the anger is justified for what happens with trauma. And the benefits of anger and feeling anger whenever you are healing from trauma is that it is in, like it is such an incredibly powerful emotion that ends up giving a person fuel. If I did not feel that anger, I would not have had the energy to figure out a plan how to get myself out. And so what I like to tell trauma survivors is don't shut down your anger, but ask yourself, how can I use this anger as a way to construct my future life rather than to destroy me? What is the difference between constructive anger and destructive anger? Because I think so often we look at anger as just being destructive when it doesn't have to be that way. And so what I decided was I was like, I really need a sense of routine. And so I am not an athlete, but what I decided to do was I was like, I'm going to be exercising on a daily basis. I'm going to be waking up and going to sleep at regular times. I am going to be playing like different nature sounds at night to be helping and calming my mind and preparing my body for sleep. Like I am going to be doing meditation and meditation can be hard for trauma survivors, but I like to do guided imagery meditations. And whenever I do that with my clients find that they really enjoy that because that can feel safer for trauma survivors. And, and I also got back into art and writing as well. And I started showing up to social engagements, even after I had been triggered. And it was very vulnerable. I have this friend who I met during this time, I was diagnosed with PTSD, and I was working through it, and I was still very raw. I had just had this realization of something that 
my mom had done that was just very horrific. So I was just crying because I was just so upset by it. I told myself, nope, I'm not going to isolate myself. Isolation is a symptom of PTSD. And I was like, and I'm going to recover from this. And so I went there and my makeup was all smeared. My eyes were red. And I go into this cafe and I'm wearing my sunglasses. And I said, hey, I am so sorry, but I'm going to leave on my sunglasses. And I was like, I know that we haven't known each other for very long, but I said, I'm having a tough day. My, my mom and I are having some conflict. And she was so great about it. She said, my mom and I have conflict too. And she was like, you can leave your glasses on or you can take them off. She was like, I'm just glad that you're here. Hmm. And so I talked with her and I didn't tell her all the details. And I kept it brief. I was like, damn, here's this person who's like seeing me and accepts me. And that was huge. And that was so healing because it's like trauma tells you that you're not going to be accepted if you're seen and seen Mm. in those vulnerable times. But in part of this process of continuing to show up, like that's what is really going to create like this depth of healing and connection with other people who are healthy. Yeah. That contrast helps when you start running into people. If you've been around that for so long and then you're like, you meet some people that are just down to earth, I suppose is the word to use for it some of the time. And Uh, you just connect and there's none of this other stuff you've dealt with that changes people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's funny. You're sitting here talking and I'm a, I'm really good at keeping my emotions in check and having this emotional intelligence and kind but as you're talking, this is the first podcast where I'm getting off equilibrium because I just, I relate so much to that because, because of bullshit that I went through. And it's, as you're talking, I was like wanting to, I was like, man, I'm don't cry, Isaac. Don't cry. Not right now. Not that I'm ashamed of crying. I cry all the time. I'm a big baby, but, and it's, and it's true because when you have gone through traumatic things, everything that you're saying is true, that, that wanting to be isolated for me, it was, I really found too much comfort in changing my state through food and through alcohol. And so I was just drinking and gaining weight and never really getting my shit together. And so when you were saying things like exercising and meditating and going through guided meditations and, and eating well and sleeping well, those are the things that quite literally got me from where I was to where I am now. It mm-hmm. was those things. And I am yeah. extremely disciplined about journaling, about using my planner, about listening to motivational stuff I, to the point where it drives my friends and family crazy. But it that is what got me from point A to point B. It does work. I can't help. It's interesting to me listening both to both of you guys share about this kind of stuff, because just speaking for myself, I didn't go through a lot of trauma like this when I was young, guys, by by comparison. And I know, of course, I know a whole lot more about Isaac's story than I do yours, Kit. But even from just what I'm getting right now, my stuff's tame. 
compared, but I do resonate with some of my inner balance and some of my ability to navigate the challenges that I have had because my challenges were my challenges and yours always feel bigger than anything else that's happening to somebody else at the time. But for me, I've had a passion for martial arts through this whole thing and some, and a really good core group of people, Isaac included that were there for me during some of my hardest moments in life. And I really, and it was still hard. I attribute that balance to to that routine and having resources like what you guys are talking about. They're so important. And people sometimes get caught up in the moment and forgot, forget, I can get through this, but I've got to develop these things that will help me get through this. Yeah, definitely. And I think whenever having religious trauma, sometimes it can be hard to find discipline because then self-discipline can feel triggering. If a person was very involved in the church of waking up in the morning, the first thing you do in the morning, you pray, you read your Bible, you do your daily devotion, you have your breakfast, your coffee. There's a whole schedule and routine that is set for people who are quote unquote devoted to God. And so then whenever you leave that, then your routine is gone. And then I think a lot of times people are like, no. And it's like with trauma, a symptom of trauma is impulsivity. Yes. And so this is getting like, too real. We're done. Wait, wait. We're done. <laughs> See you later. See you later. Well, well, Kate, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. <laughs> We're done. What you're what you're rapping on, Kit, is something that we, is very common that we talk about in relation mm-hmm. to conversion is people swinging too far the other way and going into extreme lifestyles that are dangerous in a whole different way. Yeah, absolutely. I left Indiana and like domestic violence, like literally the morning after I graduated from grad school because I was like, there you go. I have it. I have my job security. I have my financial security. Now I have my housing security. I was like, check, check. Wow. And then I <laughs> was like standing in line for commencement. And and it was like my classmates were like, hey, you coming to the bonfire to celebrate graduation this weekend? And I was like, no, I'm going to be in New York. And they just thought that it was like this running joke that I had. And, and so they're like, ah, ha, ha. people thought that I was joking so much about it that no one helped me pack up my little 2000 Honda Accord. So it was just my parents' dog saw me off. <laughs> that was it. Right. And I drove myself to New York and I, it was wild. And I, it was like, I got some texts after that. Hey, like, why aren't you here at the graduation party? And I'm like, because I'm living in New York. And having this experience of having this very like drastic shift, then I did go into impulsively living and particularly in dating because it was like, I went from purity culture. It was like, even though I didn't believe in that anymore, like I was still living with my parents. And at the end of the day, I wanted to respect them. And I wanted to respect their values, even though that they had hurt me, I still wanted to respect them. Mm-hmm. And um, so I still followed their house rules. Then when I moved to New York, I came out of the closet to everyone. 
as queer. And then as I started finding more language and developing more language, then then I came out as non-binary. And and then people were like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But in coming out of the closet, I lost the remainder of Christian friends that I had because mm. they didn't want anything to do with me. And having that happen and being so close to the pandemic as well, a lot of people relied upon their supports from people from their past. I was like, I have no one from the past. So it was this really interesting process of trying to navigate what does support look like and now in living in authenticity. And the pandemic helped in slowing me down and really letting me reflect on what are my actual values? Because I've been told for all these years what biblical values were. And I think that was something that was positive for me with the pandemic of having me sit and reflect on what my values were to slow me down because I needed that. Uh, Yeah, that's and we've talked to quite a few people. And when I've asked the question, what made you start deconverting? A lot of them said COVID. I actually just stopped living life for a second to think. And in this reflection, I went, what am I doing? Why am I participating in this? That's, again, it's a common trend. It's something that's happened consistently. What what are some of your values now that you've, since you've taken this time and kind of thought about it, is there any value that either surprised you um, or any value that was new to you that wasn't there before? Yeah. One of the major things and part of it was I was, okay, so there's this, um, to get a little bit nerdy here. Oh, let's get nerdy. Let's get nerdy. (laughs) You're speaking Tim's love language. (laughs) So in cognitive behavioral therapy, there's this kind of an exercise where you have your harmful cognition and then you write on this other side of the paper how you're going to challenge that harmful cognition. So then I was like, huh, I should totally do that with the biblical values. And I put those on one side and then I redefine what they mean for me on the other side. Fucking goosebumps. Holy shit. (laughs) That is so good. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but fucking, I'm fucking genius. I'm sorry. Keep going. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. And so one of the things that really frustrated me was family values, right? Because that means family loyalty at all costs, even the cost of abuse, that you need to be quiet despite abuse. So something that was incredibly helpful for me was redefining what honoring my mother and father meant or honoring my family meant. And I started learning more about something called epigenetics. And epigenetics is that the experiences of our ancestors are literally encoded in our DNA. So sometimes whenever we might have an experience, we're like, wow, I've never experienced this before, but it really feels like I've experienced this. Or sometimes whenever we might have something that's like a very specific trigger for us, but then we're like, where did that trigger even come from? Because I have no idea based upon my past experiences. And that can come as a result 
of epigenetics. So like, for instance, like for myself, I don't have any curtains on my windows and it's because darkness feels just very suffocating for me. And then whenever I learned about epigenetics, I was like, oh, that makes sense because I've had multiple family members die in coal mines. So it was like all these connecting points. So then I started thinking about, okay, what if honoring my mother and father wasn't about secret keeping anymore? What if it was actually honoring myself and the genetic expression that I have and honoring my ancestors' experiences through me and breaking generational cycles? And that's how I'm honoring my family. So whenever I started reframing it like that, there was this incredible amount of relief. And I felt like I could let go of anger and resentment that I had about my family. I felt like I could even release family shame and just acknowledge the harms that were done, but also the good that is done because no one is all good and no one is all bad. We're just people. Yeah. And yeah, it was just very liberating. I remember someone, I was just bitching about my dad, just going at it. And and then he asked me, well, what's good there? And I was like, blah, 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 blah. and this, this sentence came out. If you're going to blame them for everything that's wrong, you got to blame them for everything that's right. And then it was that moment where I realized a lot of my personality and my strengths and my skills came from this hype being hyper aware because I was in danger. And so I notice social cues. I notice facial expressions. I notice if someone's angry, I notice someone's cadence, someone's walk. So, and so I would pick up all these social cues to ask myself the question, is my dad going to beat the fuck out of me tonight? Is my uncle going to beat the fuck out of me? tonight? Is there anyone in this fucking trailer that's going to beat the shit out of me tonight? And for me to accept that that ended up turning into a skill where I can read people and train people and move up the chain. And, you know, as a director of training and work on sales calls, it was like, fuck, I got to, if I'm a blame for everything that was wrong, I got to blame, I got to blame them for everything that's right as well. And that was a huge breakthrough for me because like you said, it was almost like I was able to, it was like I was able to, instead of trying to process my dad inside, I was able to remove it and look at it and just realize what is. And that was a huge breakthrough for me, but, and I've never shared that on the podcast. Damn it, Kit, Kit, stop with your shenanigans. No, 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 we're done. There it is. No, I was waiting for him him to say shenanigans. Yeah. (laughs) I have to say that I really feel just in reference to like our community and people who are deconverting from religion. I think that there is such a commonality with this. I have to step back and rethink all of this stuff. What are my values? How do I feel about that? And I really loved what you said about honoring your family by being better and Mm -hmm. doing something different because I don't get all of these other little moral rules that we got taught and all the respect. I think respect is earned. And there's so many of these weird little ticks. And it's like when I got done with a lot of that, that analysis, it came down to do no harm, treat others the way you want to be treated and leave people better than you find them. Yeah, yeah. That and that's it. 
It's not that complicated. <laughs> My moral code's not very complicated. Tim, and you're an atheist. You don't ha- Tim, you're an atheist. You don't have morals. Atheists don't have morals. Yeah. <laughs> Both of you, you're atheists because you just want to sin all the time. You want to be your own guy. Yeah, 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 whatever. But I also get that whole f- fueling yourself with the anger because I felt a lot of people giving me like the presumption and yeah saying stuff like what isaac just said yeah you're an atheist yeah. you, how can you have morals and that anger fueled so much of my reanalysis and mm-hmm. and doing that it was just it was hard to tame it some of the time yeah, yeah. and that happens whenever repressing anger for such a long time because then we have this relationship with anger that we don't understand and and not understanding our relationship to anger, then it's going to get loud. So it can be listened to. Yeah, Very true. So I'm not lying, Kit. If you listen to all 60 episodes, I, I never get off this kilter. So I don't even know what to ask you. I don't even know where to take this podcast. Cause I'm just like, cause everything you're saying is just making my mind go you know, right, right, right. Tim, you're in. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done asking questions. Kit is too. She is too good. People. She is too good at this. Well, game. the good news is, is I've been keeping notes, and I can get us back on track since Boom. Isaac's going off kilter. And judging I, by that, I've told more of my life story in this one podcast than the first sixty. So, 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 so we're on. We're on this great topic. How you react when you go through some of this stuff and whether your deconversion had a lot of trauma in it or whether it had a whole lot or a whole little, a lot of these things come up. And the one that especially related to you guys who both went through very traumatic experiences in, in respect to each other is this, what you guys talked about at the beginning, which is the body keeps score, which is about from what my little understanding of this is. And I would like you guys both to expand upon this is that we literally have a physiological response to some of the stuff that's happened to us, no matter what it is, small or large, we like have a response to this. Can we jump onto that topic for a little bit? Yeah. yeah. I love this topic. And when right. Kit and I talked about this, they drop, they drop the mic every time. So yes, let's talk. <laughs> you, All right, let's go. You go. And then I'll nerd out and share what I shared with you. So Kit, what is the body keeps the score? Why is it important? So there's this phrase that trauma therapists use, your issues are in your tissues. So trauma is literally stored in the tissues of our body. Trauma-based disorders are just as much of a physiological condition as what it is a psychological condition. And so there are doctors out there, unfortunately, that are still gaslighting their patients about chronic pain and about various health conditions because they do not understand this very fundamental concept that has really been brought to light by Bessel van der Kolk, by Gabor Mate, and other psychologists. And yeah, and so whenever looking at the body keeps the score, something that we've learned is there's something called ACEs, and that's adverse childhood experiences. And there's also a counterpart to this where they're doing some more research on it. And it's called adverse religious experiences. And and so it's similar to this adverse childhood experiences, but not with as much research as what adverse childhood experiences has. With 
ACES. It's a 10 question quiz and you can take it online. And the higher your ACE score, the more likely you are to experience chronic physical health conditions as well as chronic pain. And like these numbers, these stats, they don't lie. I spent a period of time in working with people 55 and older, and there was significantly high ACE scores for people who had dementia, for people who had early physical disability because of their adverse childhood experiences. And so I think that this is something very important to keep in mind. So whenever looking at treating trauma, it's important to have the body involved as much as possible in order to be healing. And that can look different depending upon what a person's mobility level is. And and I've seen experiences from people who are able to move from the top of their head to the tip of their toes, or also people who have experienced paralysis as well. Like for instance, massage can be something that is profoundly healing for people. Having the touch of these different parts that were hurt, physically hurt from physical abuse and having that with gentle hands is something that is very nourishing. There's yoga, there is Mm -hmm. diaphragmatic breathing, there's gentle exercise, like taking walks, like part of this, it's not like rigorous exercise to the point of running a marathon. Like this is about being gentle with yourself and with your body. This is taking stretches. This is also doing something called like body scan meditation, where it's being mindful of every part of your body and taking the time and attention for each part of your body and noticing if there's any discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of these different somatic skills to be bringing into the trauma healing work. Yeah. Interesting. I think that that's fascinating. One thing that I took from when I was in college, my, my degree that I got way back in the day and I've not used very much is I got a bachelor's degree in criminology and psych. And when I was studying and taking classes on psychology, the main thing I remember about it and a lot of the stuff that I read nowadays is just that we still know so little about these things and we're still learning things every day about human psychology, about physiology and the body and how it reacts to the mind. And that is a field of expertise that is not fully flushed out. It's why they struggled with it for years. And we had insane asylums. People had no idea what to do with this stuff. And now with technology progressing and all of us looking at it differently, it's so fascinating to look at it with the, not through a religious lens, that doesn't help, but looking at it and thinking about it as this broad horizon where we don't know what's over the horizon, that we keep learning so much more new information on almost a daily basis. Well, before I reached out to you, Kit, I had watched some of your content on your Instagram channel, which for people, if you're not, if you're not already following Kit on Instagram right now, something's wrong with you. Cause, cause, cause Kit has got some great stuff that's related to yep. all things. And what, tell me again, what is, what's your Instagram handle again, Kit? 
It's Kit Morgan Therapy. Kit Morgan yeah. Therapy. I should have. I saw you showing some of your art on there the other night. You were running a live video. I couldn't stay on it, but it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> awesome. So I got on there and you had talked about you were in the mountains and you talked about the body keeps the score. And a lot of times I blend books together. So I really blend the body keeps the score, the mind body connection, those two, <laughs> two books together. But this is for the listener. We were laughing before the podcast because I had shared something with Kit that I haven't even shared with Tim. And so I, so I w- we were I talking hurt. and we, yeah. And so I was like, Oh, I have even shared this with Tim and that's how good Kit is. But- we had a shouty <laughs> match. I was like, I married you, you marry me. What's going on. Yeah. How do I not know this? And I was like, I told Kit in like the first five minutes we talked, but <laughs> so we, so I had, I had a huge breakthrough when I was 24 or 25. I was in the drive-through line at Smoothie King and I just it just clicked on me that the same way you can feed your body nutrition is the same way you feed your mind. And I became obsessed with feeding my mind the highest quality ingredients that I felt like I could find. And that was a big part of my self-improvement and gaining confidence and kind of making sense of this thing called life. And it had gotten me up to a certain point and I, I felt like I had plateaued on my growth and, and then something really profound happened for the first time in my entire life. I might've, I was like 29 or 30. I got a full body massage. And as I'm getting this full body massage, I am having a flood of memories that I don't know if I could have recalled if I if I didn't have this massage. And I am just like, where is this coming from? Why is this coming up? And oh, wh- where did this come from? And I'm feeling all these things. I'm getting highly emotional. I even told the massage therapist, I said, oh, what time is it? Uh, she said, oh, it's whatever time. I said, I totally forgot I had a meeting. I have to cancel this early. So I, I even got out of this massage early and I just went and I got into my vehicle I took a deep breath and I bawled. I just cried. I just had this complete breakdown in the car for, I don't know, a couple of hours. And I went, what was that? What, how, what was that? And so I read Body Keeps the Score and I dug into it and I just really got into it. And then I started getting to a point where I would do a visualization practice that a light was coming up and this light was coming through my body and it would come through my body and then out my feet and then swoosh back through. And in this practice, wherever the light like got jammed up or didn't flow through, I would process it. And then I had a pressure stick. It's like this blue have you ever seen it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the pressure point stick? Yeah. yeah. So I would just put it on a spot and do that pressure and I would just cry. And so Francie's like, Francie would come in. I'm butt naked. Like I'm sitting with my legs crossed and I have this thing and I'm just crying. She's Isaac's having a moment. I need to get out of here. But what ended up happening was, is I finally, I had such a huge breakthrough on the other side, realizing that a lot of this it was in my body that it wasn't, I couldn't just beat it yeah. cognitively alone. And when I learned that it made such an exponential difference. And then also in body keeps the store, it talks about PTSD and he talks about how they would do brain scans and there would be someone who would drive a motorcycle 200 miles an hour 
they get off the motorcycle and then they're as calm as can be. And so I constantly try to create chaos in my life or I would drive way too fast. I remember thinking to myself one time, I'm driving too fast. And if I get in a wreck, I could hurt someone else. And that's not right. So then I just started getting a dirt bike in the middle of nowhere. And I would go as fast as I can, because if I killed myself, at least I'm just hurting me. I'm not hurting anybody else. And it was like this desire to just be in this chaotic environment so I could calm down. Hence the restaurant industry. It's like that the restaurant industry is where you go to hide if you have PTSD. But after reading those books, I was able to go, oh, okay, this is why I'm trying to create environments of chaos because I do feel calm inside of it. And so it has just been, I'm still learning, but it's been a profound part of my journey. And I really appreciate you, Kit, for saying that therapists are gaslighting their patients because I actually shared this with my therapist at the time. And they basically told me I was full of shit. And Mm -hmm. I was fucking furious about this. And yeah. obviously that's not my therapist, but yeah. And that was a thing. So I was looking for a new therapist. I'm like, these are the things that I'm working on. And I'm a big Tony Robbins mm-hmm. fan. And Tony Robbins always talks about physiology and changing your state and, you know, having your power moves. And I'm like, this stuff works for me. This is yes. what's, this is what's making me successful. And so, yeah, I'm very passionate about the subject. I haven't shared any of this on the podcast before. Kit, you've opened up Pandora's box, but yeah, it I love it. I think it is I think it is so important. And I think and this does bring a question to me talking about me talking to the therapist and him saying I'm full of shit and this kind of gaslighting. In the industry of therapists, and we've had a lot of listeners who have really been frustrated and struggled with having Christian therapists because they have put them in a gaslighting situation where they feel like, oh, what did you do? Like mm-hmm. one woman's chaos okay, sexually molested by the pastor. And it was like, the, are you sure you didn't like it? You know what I mean? It was like, and she's like, what is going on? So that was one of the reasons we've been reaching out to therapists. But how do you feel like as a therapist, as new things come out, how do you balance that line of, oh, here's some new exercises. Here's some new technology. Here's some new information. I want to give it some time. Because I also want to make sure there's legitimacy to it. So how do you, in your industry, how do you try to keep a pulse on those type things? Like art therapy is a big area right now where I feel like some people just write it off. And then some people say, hey, there's real legitimacy to art therapy. There's always going to be new therapies that come out, always. But the thing is, I think that my field is getting overcomplicated. and. I have had so just not many, but I've had a number of clients say what you are recommending me to do is so simple. It's too simple. It shouldn't be this simple. And Mm. the clients who say, this is so simple and I'm going to trust you in this. Those are clients who I have worked with for a year and their PTSD is in remission in a year. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Which is pretty wild to think about that. And it's because of that trust being built. I love simple solutions where they work, but I've also found like some of the advice I've gotten because I've navigated some pretty hardcore depression and things like that. And a lot of my solutions that I got from getting good therapy was 
be active, get some more exercise, make time for yourself, work on your communication skills, talk about things when they happen, not later and leave them to fester, just deal with things where they are. And it's amazing what simple advice and simple practice can do for your life. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And it's just, I think that people are also so disconnected with nature. Mm. And I think that getting more into nature is something that is incredibly important for people's mental health. Maybe this is the hippie in me, but I think more people need to stand outside barefoot in the ground. I think more people need to touch some leaves, touch some grass, need to plant something. There's a lot of people who have never planted something before. It's so great because I'm about to go to Denver to the mountains. And I've always talked to my wife about how mountains put something back into my engine. There's something about being out and hiking and in nature and just... I love being around that kind of stuff. It's just, it does make a difference. And it's people put it down until you go, go take a day and just go do that for a little while. And then tell me you don't feel a little bit better. Oh yeah. It's for me, it's not the hippie stuff. I love it. I align with it. And I agree with it, especially in Houston. I remember one time in Houston, I thought I was just gonna have this nervous breakdown and I took my shoes off and I just stood on some grass next to this tree because mm-hmm. Houston is just a concrete jungle. And yeah. I couldn't remember the last time I actually was on grass barefoot. So so anyways, just mm. you keep talking and you keep going. But yeah. One of my favorite ones that we you talked earlier about, if you're going to blame your dad for the bad stuff, you got to blame him for the good stuff too. And fortunately, I really do believe I have more good things to blame my p- parents for than bad things. But one of my favorite ones from my mother that I still to this day is quit thinking about yourself and go help somebody else. Yeah. And get your mind off yourself and go help someone else that needs help. Mm -hmm. That that helps. I've always been into like, go do volunteer work. Go help somebody with their roof or whatever it is. And uh, that's extremely rewarding. Oh, definitely. A hundred percent. Or like rather than ordering takeout, try cooking. Again, it's like doing things with our hands. Like I think about PTSD as being a very primal type condition, but Mm -hmm. bringing those survival responses that go back to our evolutionary biology. So if this is going back to our evolutionary biology, then why are we making healing so complicated? Why are we not going back to what like our primal being is asking for? of sitting by a fire, making a fire, being in nature, spending time in community and around people, singing songs. Like singing is actually really good for our vagus nerve, which regulates our trauma responses. So there's all these things that our ancestors did that seem too simple And yet we are in this very complex society where we're having mental health conditions at higher rates than ever. And I don't think that's by chance. I think it's because our bodies are literally saying we need to simplify things. 
Yeah, yeah. I couldn't and agree more. Isn't there really an element of irony with everything that you are saying? Because what do you do at church? You It's praise and worship. And then yeah. when did we have this uptick in church? We had this big, at least in the United States, we had this big uptick in church during the Hillsong era when Christian music got more contemporary in K-pop. And, and I've shared this with Tim. I said, dude, I we could say I genuinely miss praise and worship from the aspect of you're surrounding, you're around people. You feel mm-hmm. like you're a part of something. You're singing out loud. You're, it's very rhythmic. It's very rhythmic and it's incorporating your physiology. And mm-hmm. then people say, Oh, I really, I felt the Holy spirit. No, that that's your physiology. It's your evolutionary biology. It, this is this st- like we're supposed to jump around a fire and scream and yell and beat our chest and go crazy because I love that stuff. But it's very much true. And what I sometimes worry about is thinking about when people deconvert is taking that next step. And we talked about this. We're trying to create this soft landing for people who are on the other side of deconversion. And then we're trying to get away from well, look, we're all on the same page sometimes. Yeah, church just sucks, church bad. It doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of contradictions within the Bible. But what can we do to start moving forward? And I think when people don't have that praise and worship, or sometimes church is the only time people actually meditate. It's the only time that they're quiet or that they're intrinsic about their beliefs and their systems. And and so everything I think you're saying is on point. And I just think that there is an opportunity at, as a free thought community to, to stop making it so complicated, but maybe try to find some of these activities or practices or make it less culturally weird. Imagine if we all went to the park right now. And we just started singing and dancing and skipping barefoot in the grass as our body's just getting dumped with oxytocin and all the good hormones inside. People are going to look at us like we're crazy. But ironically, it's what our bodies are craving. And ironically, that's what a lot of them are doing every Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's just the different perception because of settings. So I came from an Appalachian family like my dad's side of the family was Appalachian and so something that I've been enjoying of exploring more in adulthood is more of Appalachian culture and in its subcultures and Dolly Parton actually came from Appalachia so something that was very much a part of it was like gathering in a room and people would have different instruments and you would just play and you would sing. And these songs from Appalachia, they can trace roots all the way back hundreds of years to Scotland, to England, to Ireland, Mm -hmm. still singing the same songs that have been sung for hundreds of years that have this bridge connection. And I think that this needs to be done again. I think that people need to be sitting down in a living room and playing music together and singing and making Mm. up songs. I think that there is healing that comes through story. And there's this phrase, story medicine. 
I want people to be singing more ballads that they're just making up a lot as what they go. And it may be silly or it may be sad and bonding through this and also having that singing and that community type experience. Yeah. I'm having mic on, drop, mic uh, drop people. I know. Drop the oh, mic. I know we should just end on high notes like that. I can't help but have fond memories of, uh, I took my, this was such a weird experience for me because I had, this was COVID really drove a lot of what you're talking about away. Now there's an opportunity to come back and do this. And this was probably the first big thing I did after COVID. My youngest nephew, Vinny, came to visit and I we went to see Ramstein at the Alamo Dome. I don't know if you know who Ramstein is. I do, but, yeah. Okay. It was the 50,000 people bopping to the same music. Wow. And he and I are huge fans. We loved it. was something he and I bonded over a summer internship when he stayed with my wife and I while he was doing an internship. And we both loved that band. And we went and I felt like I was on drugs the whole time I was there. And there wasn't <laughs> all I have was a margarita. And when I got home, I felt like I was coming down off of that high for a week. And it was yeah. amazing. And all I could think about is like going and doing something else like that because it made me feel so good. It energized everything else that I was doing. Yes. Good stuff. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and that's why and that's why Tim's gonna be taking dance lessons. <laughs> oh god. I've been really oh yeah. I the okay, fighter we'll, we'll, who's we'll shy you... about dancing. Yeah. It's because I have trauma around dancing. I was the awkward kid when I was younger, and there was all the dancing at the church, and then there were dances mm -hmm. and stuff. And I got picked on and I got made fun of about this stuff. And Tim, I know Kit's I'm my not that therapist. Tim, <laughs> Kit's my therapist. He, you don't get to tell Kit your problem. That's my <laughs> Isaac's. I've got this kit. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> I think we should I think we should polish this one off while it's I mean, cuz this is just yeah. great and we could go on forever. And, uh, Tim, I'm sorry for interrupting. But <laughs> Oh, it's okay. No, 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 let's no. let's ask our quintessential final question, Kit, yes. which is what would you hope that someone listening to this podcast would take away from it? What would you hope that they would take from our podcast today? If you could give them one thing. I think that is to stop overthinking healing. Because in religion, we're taught to intellectualize, we're taught to separate ourselves from our body and to really question our own intuition. But I would encourage you to get back to basics and find a routine and a way of life that's going to work well for you in the long run, not the short run. And so that may mean building this up over time rather than having it come quickly for you. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. I, lo I love it. And just a listener note, that was freestyle. They didn't even read that. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Yeah. No, I think it's awesome. Tim, I do feel bad. I saw the opportunity for the joke and I made it and I apologize. No, it's, but, no, it's but dancing, it But because I hadn't heard it. So hit a little background. I've been giving Tim a really hard time to go do dance lessons with Leah and Francie. And I said, well, I'll do karate if you go to a dance class at least once. <laughs> and I've been going to karate, no pun intended, pretty religiously here. So doing I'm well, trying, too. I'm trying to hold Tim's feet That's to the awesome. fire. That's awesome. He's not the only one holding my feet to fire. My martial arts instructor, who I've been with for 13 years, is on me about two. He's I don't get it. What's your problem? And I'm like, you don't understand. I have trauma. 
Yeah. And I will make an effort. No, but tell, but say what you were saying, because because I feel bad. So your parents, uh-huh. like, why, why is, yes, why is dancing a thing? It's nothing crazy. It's the simple fact that I was the awkward chubby kid and I went to churches where all of what I felt was like all the good looking people were up front praising the Lord. And then I was treated funny because I wasn't doing that. I felt awkward. And so that also made me backslidden or not right with God, all of those types of things that would get circulated around, talked about. And then I was shy. I very much consider myself like a late bloomer. I didn't build a lot of my personal confidence until I was in my early 20s. And that's when a lot of my main dating life came up. And Mm -hmm. so even within that dating life, it's not that I can't dance. I do. It's just not something that I seek out because it's like I have a physio, I have a, this weird aversion to it. And it's just been easier to avoid it up to this point. (laughs) I hear you. I feel awkward with dancing because like in the Baptist circles that I grew up in, dancing wasn't allowed. So I ended up being reluctant to try dance class and I ended up doing it. I took a few dance classes. There was one dance class. I didn't really like it too much, but then there was this other dance class. I took a Bollywood dance class and (laughs) it was so much fun. And I knew the dance instructor and I was like, Hey, just so you know, like I wasn't allowed to dance whenever I was growing up. So like, this is what like like thing for me. And she would point me out like in the class and she'd be like, Oh, look at how great they're looking. I love those shoots. And so it was like getting set out like that. I was like, Oh, like that makes me feel good. And like less awkward and stuff. And, and even in the dance class and set, I was like, oh, I'm not so sure about it. It was more helpful whenever I ended up telling the instructor, I was like, hey, just so you know, I'm pretty awkward because of this. And I think sometimes just like in going into that kind of dance environment, it can be good to give the instructor a disclaimer like, hey, I have this different Mm -hmm. experience with my body. And so I'm new to this. And if you can just be patient and gentle. And that was just like, yeah, it was just really helpful for me and my experience. So. I'm really excited that you're going to be taking a dance class. Well, you heard it. Mind. You heard it, buddy. Oh, we're going to dance the night away, Buttercup. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should make a dance video and then you can post it on your Instagram. You know, you could do Ooh. one one Instagram dance trends after you're done with the yes. dance. Class. We'll do the Wednesday song. It'll we're, be great. We're, we're getting, we're getting <laughs> called out. There's an official call to action, Tim. Your feet are really on the fire. Sensei, if you're <laughs> listening to this, you put Tim's feet to the fire. Goodness. <laughs> well, Cheers, thank, you guys. thank you so much, Kip, for being on this podcast. It was absolutely great talking with you. And yeah, I hope you had a tenth of as much fun as we did. And yeah, you're a great source of knowledge and information. And I'm excited about your private practice when that starts and I think you're going to crush it. Yeah, we'll have to Thank we'll have to have, have you back on as well, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That'll be awesome. All right. Excellent. Bye everybody. Have a great night. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Deconversion podcast. We're so happy you joined us. Please like, share and subscribe and we'll see you on the next episode.